Appreciate your enthusiasm, Corky, with that clap, that robust. That's the best clapping I heard in here all morning, right there. Appreciate that. I was praising the Lord this morning when I um, drove up to the church grounds, and uh, everything just looked so well cared for. I don't know if, if you ever noticed those things. It doesn't always look that way, but we have new siding, we have a new roof, the grounds look meticulously maintained, and so I'm just thankful for this beautiful place that's so well cared for out here this morning. I'm thankful for you, my brothers and sisters in Christ, that we can come to this beautiful place and learn about our beautiful God. And we are in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 21. And Matthew has a lot to say in his last eight chapters here because Jesus is very close to his finish line. He's close to the end of his earthly ministry. And in our chapter, he has risen to his highest level of popularity. All this time in his ministry, of course, he has humble beginnings. But all this time, Jesus is on a preordained path so that his plan of redemption works out exactly as it's prophesied and, of course, as it's planned. And so all along, even though he's doing miraculous things, he's also kind of taking the temperature, if you will, so that he does not rise in popularity too soon or so that he does the not does not decline in popularity too quickly as he's headed to the cross. And before we looked at the triumphal entry where Jesus was hailed as the king of the Jews and the excitement was top notch. He rode into Jerusalem on a donkey and people hailed him as the king. And in doing so, he fulfilled countless Old Testament prophecies that God has indeed sent to this dark and hurting and broken world his promised Messiah, the Savior. And so now we have a group of people that are very excited about him. But at the same time, we also have a group of people that are growing in their hatred of him. And that would be the Jewish leaders, because the more popular he gets with the people, the more hated he is by the Jewish leaders. They feel very, very uh, threatened by Jesus, not just on a spiritual level, but in a sense that they could lose their jobs, so to speak, because it's their job to shepherd the people, which really turns out to be it's their job to be in control. It's their job to wield the power. And that is what Jesus threatens. The authority and their well-established system that they have. A hierarchical system. And so when Jesus goes into the temple and he drives out the money changers, they want, they demand to know, by what authority are you calling these shots? Who do you think you are? This is our job. We are in this place. So they are very, very threatened. But they have a dilemma. Their dilemma is this. On the outside, they like to appear very righteous and very holy and very worthy leaders. But on the inside, they are dark and corrupt and malicious. And so they have this problem. They got to figure out how they can take away the competition, how they can take away this person that threatens the very core of their being, and do it in such a way as to come away looking blameless. Now, that's a hard thing to do. And that is what is going on in their heads. 
In a few weeks from now, we'll see that one of their attempts is to try to corner Jesus and and question him in such a way that his own words condemn him. They'll put him in a corner and they'll ask him a question so that no matter how he answers, he's doomed. And we will look at that shortly. But for now, and Jesus, of course, knows their hearts. But for now, Jesus is still ministering. And he knows about their hatred. He knows that the cross awaits. But he is still reaching out to his people. He is still extending the olive branch of peace with the gospel. That if you repent and put your faith in him as the Savior sent by God, you shall be saved. And even though they have not done that, though they make every appearance to be as close to God as you can possibly get with their hypocrisy. He knows the darkness in the depths of their hearts. So we're going to look at what Jesus has to say to the Jewish leaders, the Pharisees and and the Sadducees. And a lot of times um, when I come to portions in the scriptures that talk about the Pharisees and Sadducees, I think, yeah, I can't really relate to them. They got all dressed up and they they really were really showy. And that's not my style. And and I might be tempted to put put uh, put it in neutral and, and go on a thinkation or something like that. But there's it has been said that there's a little bit of Pharisee in all of us. And so we want to hear uh, God's word this morning, not in a yeah, get them. They were Dirty, rotten scandals. But we want to hear what does God have to say to me? What's in my heart? And one of the things about Jesus that we will see, especially we've seen so far, but we will continue to see is that when he ministers and that when he tells stories and parables and when he asks questions and when he refuses to answer a question the way you want, but maybe even answer it with another question. Jesus is always trying to draw out what's in our hearts. Like he, he ministers in such a way to bring us to a place where we can see what is in our heart, what needs to be dealt with instead of everybody else's heart. And you will no doubt see that in these parables this morning. And what we have is people that have really gone off track. People who are very passionate about thinking If I stand for anything, I stand for God. And he's very important in this nation. These people are very important to me. But because they never truly trusted and had faith to the point where their eyes were open, they do it in a twisted, darkened way. And it turns out to really be all about self and not about God. And there's kind of a part of them that knows that just with us. There's a part of us that knows when we do wrong. I probably shouldn't have done that. There's something wrong with this. But yet sin part of us says, but I'm going to do it anyway. You know, that's how they are. They are proceeding in the darkness of their hearts. So we want to hear what God would say to us this morning in regards to his word And by looking at these parables, what we're going to see is uh, stories about how people reject God, because that's exactly what they're doing. They are rejecting God. But we're also in them, we're going to be able to see what it looks like to embrace God. So not just the negative, but also the positive. May the words of the king 
Just enlighten our hearts and our minds so that we can exalt Christ the King. So that we will have words and material to edify our brothers and sisters in Christ. And so that we will have the gospel to evangelize the lost. We're going to cover three parables this morning because all three bear the same theme of rejecting the king. And the first one is in verses 28 through 32. Jesus is speaking. What do you think? A man had two sons and he went to the first and said, son, go and work in the vineyard today. And he answered, I will not. But afterward, he changed his mind and went. And he went to the other son and he said the same. And he answered, I go, sir. But did not go. Which of the two did the will of his father? And they said, the first. Jesus said to them, truly, I say to you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed him. And even when you saw it, you did not afterward change your minds and believe him. There's fewer better ways to drive home a principle or perhaps to reveal a heart than the use of a parable. Jesus tells many of them. And in this parable, he exposes the hypocrisy of the Jewish leaders. Uh, it's, it's very obvious um, who's to fault here and what God is after. Both sons are given the exact same command. The, the will of the father was expressed to both of them in the same way equally. And it's very obvious who the sons represent. And the son that says, I will go and doesn't go, obviously represents the Jewish leaders who hear the will of God and the command of God and by outward appearances seem to be on board with God. But in their heart underneath, they're not doing the will of the father. They give lip service. And that's a dangerous thing. Because what we literally have is a group of people that pray. And they pray earnestly. They, pr they pray a lot. We have a group of people that generously give to God. They tithe faithfully. We have a group of people that attend the services in the temple very, very faithfully. Not only that, but they study God's word very, very diligently. And they obey as far as can be seen, many, many rules that are written in Scripture. We have a group of people that just look very, very holy and righteous on the outside. And yet on the inside are literally rotten. And it's possible for mankind to fall into this temptation. It's it's possible for mankind to look like they are something on the outside and yet unseen are the thoughts and the motives. And yet God sees. And in essence, what they're saying is, I will not 
obey you. You see, on the outside, it looks like they are obeying their father, but they are in grand disobedience. They are dishonoring him. They are disrespecting him. They do many of the same things that Christians do. And yet there's a a blistering difference. It's, It's day and night on the inside. And they do not have a true faith because they have not obeyed the Scripture that we must repent of our sin, turn from our sin, and turn to God. And because they have not done that, they are just living in a pool of sin and darkness. And all their decisions and all their emotions and all their passions are driven by that instead of the will of the Father. So they're very evil, very dark, very greedy, very selfish, but you'd never necessarily know it. Very angry. They're lusting after power. They're lusting after the authority that they have been able to hold on to. And Jesus threatens this. And so they are a scourge to their father. And yet, surprisingly, who is it that has the change of heart but the rebel? The one who doesn't hide their sin but puts it out in open for everybody to see. I'm not going to be a faker. I'm a sinner and I know it. And so we have these tax collectors that are in the open, greedy people, trying to get every coin they possibly can, look for every opportunity to cheat somebody. And then we have the prostitutes that lust after attention in different ways. Uh, Try to fill their insecurities in different ways. But they're blatant. They're out there. They're not hiding their sin. And it is those that have a change of heart. They start out to disobey. Yet something is going on in their heads or hearts and their mind to the point where they have seen, you know, it would just be wrong for me to do this. I cannot do that any longer. I must obey the voice of my father. And that's the work. Of the Holy Spirit. Thought I had competition for a minute there. You know, you would think, and then Jesus says, they're the ones that are walking into the kingdom of heaven and you're still on the outside. And he mentions that you would think that after witnessing such a display of transforming grace. After witnessing people that live for money, live for greed, and were disloyal to their own people in favor of Rome, but really in favor of money. And then watching people disrespect their bodies and lust after sexual favors and other things. And now you're watching this greedy person now be generous in the name of Christ. And, and this other person now be pure and holy in the name of Christ. And they don't do those other things anymore. And you would think that a light bulb would go off that would cause them to think, wow, God is powerful. The message of the gospel really can transform hearts. But Jesus says, you still didn't get it. You witnessed my miracles by my own hands and then you witness my miracles in the hearts of others changed. And you're so dark and hardened in heart, you're so obstinate and disobedience, disobedient that it, it didn't move you enough to bring you 
to repentance. Faith without works is dead. And they're dead in sin. And so there's no response. Even though the evidence is ample, Jesus is saying. What more evidence of the power of God do you need? Than to watch me transform a heart. We want to be on guard against the devil's trap of doing the right things for the wrong reasons. Faith without works is dead. They failed to respond to the message. They failed to respond to God's appeals time after time after time. And Jesus is aggressively pursuing them. And it made me thought, think to myself, how many times did I hear a grace-filled message or a great message or a great teaching and nodded in agreement and did nothing? No response. And that's the life that they live. Here they are in the face of God. In the presence of the power of God and no response. You can only do that so many times before it begins you begin to become lifeless. So when we hear God's word, we don't want to just have our ears tickled, as the New Testament says. But we want to be intentional to allow it to bring forth the change, whatever change that God is after in our hearts. And I know he's after change. Because it amazes me that God never gives up in transforming our hearts. If if. If you're 110 and there are things that need to be changed in your heart, God will be pursuing those things. Never ceases to amaze me. I would be very tempted to give you a break. If you made it to 70 in the Christian life, eh, just glide the rest of the way. But God is a holy God and he is after hearts. Before that, we discover that Perhaps our brand of Christianity, like the Pharisees, is really just another way to disguise our idols. Disguise our lusts. You see, they had turned their religion into a way simply to disguise the lust of their heart. Into making it look like it was godly. They're two sons. Not three. Jesus Puts them in a corner where you have to either see, look, you either obey the message or you don't. You either respond or you don't. And these rebels had a change of mind. And that is the power of God. And there is ample evidence, just like in that day, there's ample evidence to us today as God transforms hearts. It's a message of the gospel that. God is real and he's powerful and we're surrounded by it. And it is ample. And it is a gracious plea for us to step into the kingdom of God by repenting of our sin and putting all of our faith in him and forsaking our idols. And so we see the first parable. And then on the heels of that in verses 33 through 46. He tells a parable of the tenants. Here another parable. There was a master of a house who planted a vineyard and put a fence around it, and dug a wine press in it, and he built a tower and leased it to tenants 
and went into another country. When the season for fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit. And the tenants took his servants and beat one, killed another, and stoned another. Well, again, he sent other servants, more than the first, and they did the same to them. Finally, he sent his son to them, saying, they will respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. And they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. When, therefore, the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those to those tenants? Now, hear their answer. Well, they said to him, he'll put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits in their seasons. And Jesus said to them, have you never read in the scriptures the stone that the builders reject has become the cornerstone? This was the Lord's doing. And it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. And the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. So Jesus applies it to them just in case they didn't get it. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, they perceived that he was speaking about them. And although they were seeking to arrest him, they feared the crowds because they held him to be a prophet. So you see how Jesus is doing what he can to draw out their hearts and to bring them to a place of enlightenment where they can make preferably the right decision. And when he coins this story in different terms, when they don't realize that they're the culprits, it's very obvious to them who's right and who's wrong and what needs to be done. But when he applies it to them, suddenly things have changed and they feel like they're not on the hook that he has just put them on. And all it really does is cause them to see. So here's an opportunity for them to see the reality of the situation. To see that God had the kingdom has indeed come, as John the Baptist said, that he is making smooth the path and leveling the mountains, that good news is being preached and that hearts are changing. The kingdom of God has come and is coming. It's a reality. And he is trying to awaken them to what they are surrounded with. But they are hard hearted. They know in the story what deserves to be done. It's pretty obvious. They're wretches. I mean, anybody that would do such a thing is a wretch. They have no right to do that. But what they deserve, the master has every right to come and destroy them. He has every right to to reset up the farm, put new people in it, because the whole reason he has it is so that it will bear the fruit that he desires. He's looking for something particular, and so he invests, invests in it. They killed the prophets, 
course, the Old Testament prophets, the servants. So the Jewish people were set in the land of the vineyard, God's land, chosen by God, privileged to do a task, to be a light to the nations. They lost out on that and they were darkened in their mind and they failed in that. So God sends prophet to, prophets to remind them to get the fruit that God is after and they kill them and finally they send the son. Now, about three days from this parable, it's prophetic. They literally will kill the son that God has sent. Power and control. What will the owner do? What should the owner do? They admit their own guilt. You see how the theme of rejection, he's saying you're rejecting. You're rejecting what God is doing. You're rejecting the servants. You're rejecting God's son. And in Psalm 118 that he quotes about the, the cornerstone, it will come and crush you because that which you have rejected will break you into pieces. There are consequences to rejecting Christ. It always amazes me in Scripture how, how God sees us in relation to responding to the gospel message. He sees that if you're not fully embracing the son that he's excited about, that he sent, then you're rejecting him. You, you either fully embrace him or in God's eyes, you're fully rejecting him because he really is the king. And he really is worthy of all our worship. That's just who he is. And that's the way it is. So if we are not coming into line with the reality of the kingdom, then in essence, we're rejecting him. And yet I kind of like to see myself more in the line of, well, yeah, not aggressively rejecting. I'm maybe in I'm contemplative mode. I'm thinking it over. And Jesus does say count the cost. But while we're counting the cost, we are in the camp of the enemies. There's like no third son. There's no neutral ground. And so scripture the power, one of the powers of Scripture is that it, it constantly beckons us to see who God is and who we are and make a decision. And that's what Jesus is doing here. He is the cornerstone. And by the way, we are in this parable. Are we not? Did you catch it? God has a plan. He has a plan that fruit that would be bore, that glory would come up to him. And there's a group of people that failed in that plan. They absolutely rejected it. And so he he puts other tenants in. Of course, that's the Gentiles because he is the God to all nations, to all peoples. And so we have the church here. The people of God chosen by God to do what? To bear fruit, not to just ride it out. To the second coming. But to work diligently in the vineyard because God is after something. He's after something in us. I mean, where are the people in this parable that are doing the right thing? That have been, that have replaced the workers that weren't doing the right thing? That's us. How are we doing at it today as the church? Now, how hard are we working? How focused are we in bearing fruit for the king? In joining hands. We are reading about ourselves. And so we read this and we realize, wow, if I'm not intentional, I could take the wrong path like those before me. If I don't keep God before me on a daily basis. 
if I'm not exalting him and, and edifying myself in his word and reaching out to those and reminding them and warning them about the kingdom, then it's not going to be done. I think it was Rich Mullins that said, there's no plan B. Plan A is the church. We are plan A until Christ returns. No more replacement. How are we doing? Are we bearing the fruit that God wants? Where are the people of this age? We have to be careful not to reject the prophetic words and works of Christ as his call continues to go out. The only thing that kept the Jews, it's revealing in this passage. The only thing that really kept them, um, as I said before, from killing Jesus on the spot was that they have to find out a way to do it so that they don't look bad. See, it was the fear of man. Did you catch that in there? It was the fear of man. That's what's most important to them. And sometimes fear of man keeps us from doing something evil. Sometimes the fear of man keeps us from doing good things. Somehow and sometimes perhaps the fear, it's the fear of man that keeps us from believing in the gospel and embracing the gospel. They were in bondage to it. It's a reminder for us to embrace God for who he is and for what he is doing and embrace him for what he has called us to do. Lest we be cut off. And it's a reminder that we've been placed here for a reason. And that our life is not our own. That we've been given commands or orders from headquarters, if you will. Our life is not our own. You know, that's not a message that you hear from the church very often anymore. It's more of a pampering message. It's, it's softened to... To tickle our ears, we accommodate the gospel to the flesh of man instead of calling forth for change to accommodate the glory of God. And more and more we're told to follow our dreams and the desires of our heart and our wishes. And yet you read scripture and is that what scripture really says? Yes, if it's in line with the will of God. Our lives are not our own. I remember not so long ago, I was thinking about ministry and my life and my age. And no, it wasn't a midlife crisis because I'm not there yet. Or maybe I missed it. I don't know. Maybe it came and gone. Maybe it was a bad dream. But anyway, I'm just thinking about what do I want my life to look like in the years to come? You know, my kids are they're they're advancing in years and things are changing and my parents at home and my immediate family. I'm thinking, what do I want my life to look like? Should I do this? And then it dawned on me, what you, you don't get to choose these things. God has a call on your life. You do what God expects of you, what God requires of you. Why? Because it's better than anything you would come up on your own, period. No matter how bright or no matter how happy you think your future can be based on your decisions. We're not here to chase after what our flesh longs for unless it's in line with the will of God. The disciples wanted to pray more effectively. So Jesus says, OK, I'll teach you. I'll give you the pattern. He gives them the Lord's Prayer. And what's one of the first things, just a basic tenet of the Christian faith to pray every day, if you will. Thy kingdom come. 
Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And yet sometimes we are taught all about seeking after our own will and our own ambitions and our own desires and not being challenged. Do they line up with God's plan that we are surrounded with? The kingdom is here and we need to be on board with that. There's only one true king and he has freed us from bondage so that we can serve him. So we want to make sure even this morning that there's nothing in us that's rejecting this king. But that we are fully embracing him. And then there's another parable as if that wasn't enough. And again, you think Jesus wants to get their attention. And it sounds like and you could look at it and you say, you know, Jesus is really beating up on them. And you could look at it that way. But really, it's an appeal. See yourself for who you are. See what's happening and change. So we had sons and then we had tenants and now we have guests. Again, Jesus spoke to them in parables, saying the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son. And he sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast, but they would not come. And again, he sent other servants saying, tell those who are invited. See, I have prepared my dinner, my oxen, my fat calves have been slaughtered and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention and went off. One to his farm, another to his business. While the rest seized his servants, treated them shamefully and killed them. The king was angry. And he sent his troops and destroyed those murders and burned their city. And then he said to his servants, the wedding feast is ready. But those who, in, who but those invited were not worthy. Go, therefore, to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you find. And those servants went out into the roads and gathered all whom they found, both bad and good. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. And when the king came in to look at the guests, he saw there a man who had no wedding garment. And he said to him, friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. And then the king said to the attendants, bind him hand and foot and cast him into the outer darkness in that place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called, but few are chosen. In essence, God in this parable, well, he, he's making a comparison of what the kingdom of God is like. And in essence, God is saying to humanity, rejoice with me. There is something incredible to celebrate. And I want everybody to be in on it. I want all of you to come and be happy with me and be blessed with me and rejoice in what's taking place. And so he sends the invitation out. So patient our father is. So patient even to offer three parables instead of just one. The invitation goes out time and time again. He's calling us into this beautiful feast, this beautiful covenant relationship where he holds us fast. He wants us to celebrate with how wonderful he is and how good his plan is and what a blessing it is for all things as they are redeemed. And he has his guests in mind and he sends invitations out to them and they're rejected. 
he sends out more. And he reminds them of what a grand celebration is. Look, it's already it's already ready. You don't have to sit around and wait. Everything is prepared. Just come. I've done all the work. But they have their own lives, their own agenda. So they snub it. And as if that isn't rude enough, they don't even want to hear the message anymore. They don't even want to hear the invitation anymore. So they kill the messengers. They kill the servants being so annoyed with the king's invitation. They do not rejoice. The king did not at all appreciate this response. He has them destroyed. But the violence and the judgment, the consequences do not stop the wedding feast. The wedding feast will happen. It's just a matter of who is going to be in attendance. He sends out more and they invite them and both good and bad, of course, representing uh, the rebels that have changed their heart. And then. The parable changes a little bit in its focus because now the hall is filled with, I mean, it's filled. But there's one person that's standing out, one person that is not in sync. And, of course, the master recognizes this because he knows his guests so well. And I won't go into all the details about this one person that is not properly dressed, but he is not robed in the wedding gown. And, of course, we know what this is representative of. And that is that if we are if we are not dressed properly or if we are not robed in the righteousness of Christ, we will not make it to the wedding feast of the lamb that will take place in heaven. And perhaps it's a reminder to these Pharisees that think, well, actually, I look pretty good. And if anybody deserves to be in, it's me. They don't have the right clothes on. They have man made clothes. Self-righteousness, works close, not faith close. The faith clothes come as a gift of God. And we are clothed in the righteousness of Christ because he spilled his blood and gained the right by grace to bring us in, to make us disciples. And so there's no fakers, no posers. There's one way to get in, and it comes out in this parable of having the proper credentials. What a gracious warning of God, really, to all of us. Though they had their excuses why they could or couldn't come, but in the end, those that there are those that reject and those that celebrate. And the ones that rejected are speechless. At the judgment that they receive. And the ones that accepted can't keep their mouths shut. But go on and on and on in excitement and praise and delight. At the invitation of the feast. They are gushing over the goodness of God. You know, scripture constantly puts things in light. We're either for God or we're against God. Many are called and few are chosen. We're either giving to God or in Scripture's mind, what we're doing is we're robbing from God. We're taking away. If we're not diligently working in the vineyard, then we are robbing from giving God what is deserved and due. 
And I look at this thing, this parable, and I think, look how evil a heart can become. I mean, this, these are ruthless depictions of a human heart. This is cold and dark because it has rejected the advancements of God. Hearts are dangerous things. Scripture tells us not to trust our own hearts, but to submit them to the truths of God. And let me just tell you that in our culture right now, we are witnessing literally the dangers of the heart. And how the heart can just be so deceived and twisted and think it's doing the right thing. And in the end, we actually have changed so that the things that used to be good and and used to be evil. Now we have things that used to be evil that are lauded as good, as righteous even. And in our culture, things that we used to kind of put in the category of politics, like your preferences, now are being refashioned and formed into a new morality. You know how passionate people are today about things? Violent even? It's because a new morality is being formed. Consciences are being manipulated to feel newly bad about some things and yet good about other things. The transformation, say, of uh, the LGBT and socialism uh, and, and all the emphasis on our freedoms and our rights and our happiness. And so now there's a moral pressure to, to think a certain way. It's not acceptable to not think certain ways. And you will feel condemnation if you do not conform to this new morality that's taking place, so to speak. There's a pressure. And whereas freedom used to be found in repentance and embracing God, who has absolute truth. Now, without absolute truth, we can just change the rules whenever we want, right? Just move the goal line. Used to be here. Oh, it's here now. Lower the basket. Just lower it. You can, re, you can redefine things any way you want and say, now these are the rules we're going to live by. That is exactly what we're seeing. Boundaries are being changed. And there's new convictions, if you will, new pressures to conform to this. So that we are made to feel like we're the greedy ones. We're the selfish ones. We are keeping people in bondage. And yet the message of the gospel used to be the message of freedom. So what is it? Who's true? Who's right? Every day, just like the Pharisees, we have to make the decisions. Who is my God? What do I believe in? How am I supposed to be living? Because if we do not guard our hearts in that way, there are lots of paths that our hearts will take. But the one to the kingdom of heaven is narrow. That's the one that we want to follow. Let's be the obedient son. Let's be the tenants that go in there and just dig in and make that vineyard produce for the glory of God. And let's be the, the guests that just rejoice and gush over the God that has saved us from eternal damnation. May God bless the preaching of his word.